Welcome to the Sugar Science Podcast, where our mission is to highlight and connect researchers in the type 1 diabetes space. I'm Monica Wesley, the founder of the Sugar Science and your host for today's podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Paul Peter Tock. He has uh, a host of different, um, he wears a host of different hats. I guess I'll start with the fact that he is a, currently a director on the board of, uh, of the board of directors at Satirix in London. He's the director of the board of directors of Citril in the Netherlands. He's the deputy chair um, for Strategic Priorities Fund uh, for Multimorbidity Steering Group in London. He's the director of the board of directors in Levisept, also in London. And he um, also has an academic uh, position. He's an honorary professor at the University of Ghent in Belgium and a senior visiting fellow at University of Cambridge. So he's wearing many hats. And today is going to be a very interesting discussion, I'm certain. So welcome, um, Paul Peter, and thank you for speaking with us today. Thank you very much. Um, so I let's start off here. Like let's just go right to the right to the meat of the discussion. Where do you see the uh, cure from uh, type one diabetes coming from? Yeah, of course, there's been an incredible improvement in the treatment of diabetes in general. Right when insulin was discovered a long time ago, and then you read the old literature, it was like a revolution. But it's very clear that you can, and we need to, improve how we measure glucose, how we administer insulin. But in the end, it's not a curative approach. I think the future is clearly in looking at diabetes, type 1 diabetes, in a different way. And I would almost reclassify it and call it as an immunologist, not necessarily as a diabetes expert. I would call it pancreatic autoimmunity. It's an immune-mediated inflammatory disease affecting the pancreas, leading to all the problems, including insulin um, production, insulin sensitivity, etc. So ultimately, the solution needs to be causative and needs to be by intervention of the immune system. And I think we need to look at all forms of diabetes, including type 1 diabetes, by heterogeneous diseases. We need to understand the molecular substance. And we also need to understand the importance of different molecular mechanisms during different stages of the disease, which will open up the opportunity to interfere with these mechanisms. And in the end, I think the solution is in the world of immunology, as I call it, pancreatic autoimmunity. Uh, it already implies that Ultimately, you want to give the right immunological intervention at the right stage of the disease to prevent further progression of the disease and cure the disease. Uh, so I think the cure will come from the field of immunology. And we have some evidence for this, I think, when you look at the um, effects of interventions like anti-CD3 antibodies. And we've done some work uh, in my own unit uh, in the past at ESK using otelixizumab, which is an anti-CD3 antibody. There are other examples right, where it has been shown that you can indeed alter the disease course by inter intervention, mm -hmm. but it's just a first proof of mechanism that this is a possibility. We're still far off, I think, from real cure and one step further, prevention of the disease. That it opens up this whole new world of immunological interventions. And 
I think we need to aim to induce what I would call remission of immunological disease, mm-hmm. uh, which m- might be possible with anti-CD3 antibodies or a more sophisticated, specific approach, and then maintain that remission, which might actually require a different approach. So my answer is to, we need to aim for cure and prevention. I think the answers will come from the field of immunology. When you talk about staging, um, you know, how would you um, propose that that type of staging would happen? Yeah, it, it's very clear that we need to, dis- to look at the different stages or phases of the disease and characterize them in great detail on multiple levels, ranging from clinical to molecular and immunological features. And this is true probably for all immune-mediated inflammatory diseases. I'm actually a rheumatologist and an internist. So I look at it through the lens of rheumatology. But the interesting thing is that there are many similarities between, for example, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, SLE, lupus, Mm -hmm. or in the field of neurosciences, multiple sclerosis, Mm -hmm. and type 1 diabetes. So we need to look at the similarities and the differences during these different stages of the disease. Of course, the end stage is established diabetes when there are signs and symptoms, impaired glucose tolerance, etc. Then before that time, you have impaired glucose tolerance, but not the fully developed clinical picture. Before that time, you may have immunological abnormalities like uh, the presence of circulating autoantibodies specific mm-hmm. for type 1 diabetes and uh, abnormalities in the T cell compartment. Uh, and then before that time, you may have a genetic predisposition. So we need to look at this in different uh, phases of the disease, in different subsets uh, of the condition, because it might be a syndrome rather than one specific molecular entity. Yeah. Uh, and that will help us to really understand which intervention may be the right one during a specific phase of the disease to cure or prevent and for a specific individual in the context of precision medicine. Yeah, there does seem to be a need for personalized medicine within type 1 diabetes and probably, as you're suggesting, within multiple autoimmune diseases. Exactly right. Yeah, these are the same principles, I think, that apply across multiple immune-mediated inflammatory diseases, including type 1 diabetes. Uh, just sort of one question. Do you know anyone who is looking at that, uh, at those sort of cousin diseases um, as one entity? I mean, is there any scientists that, or uh, biotech industry that sort of is looking at all four of these the diseases you mentioned, RA, SLE, uh, MS, and T1D, and sort of like trying to understand the Venn diagram there? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not aware of... Um biotech company or big pharmaceutical company that's in a systematic way analyzing this. I am aware actually of public-private partnerships mm-hmm. focused on this. And I think we need to put a lot of emphasis on public-private partnerships here because we need to work together in a pre-competitive way between academia and biotech and pharmaceutical industries to, to, to do the right studies focusing on human biology and human immunology to follow in a prospective way individuals at risk of developing type 1 diabetes and mapping on all levels actually what's going on until they develop full-blown diabetes. So one public-private partnership I've played 
uh, did a role in the past in Europe is the um, Innovative Medicines Initiative, IMI, okay. IMI. Uh, which, is a, which is probably the largest actually uh, public-private partnership in the world. Mm -hmm. So I've had the privilege to oversee the, um, the creation of the strategic research agenda of the public-private partnership, IMI 2, as we called it, with a budget of 3 billion euros. So it's not insignificant. 50% yeah. comes from the European taxpayers and 50% comes from the pharmaceutical industry with a presence in Europe, including mm. all the big pharmas, but also biotech companies. So they would give a contribution in kind and work with academia. It's done in a competitive way where consortia need to uh, propose uh, their proposals right, to um, uh, committees and in independent peer review to ultimately advance the science and to do research that a pharmaceutical company could never do alone. Yeah. Um, so there are these initiatives and I've been a keen supporter of the idea to not limit ourselves to any field like rheumatoid arthritis or SLE or multiple sclerosis or type one di diabetes, but actually try to create data where we can understand what are the shared mechanisms mm -hmm. and what are the distinct mechanisms. Yeah. What can we learn from it? And how can we ultimately translate it into medicines for patients? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it, it does seem to be a good model of doing, a good way of doing things to me. Yeah, I think it's critical. I, I agree with you. Um, let's see. Can you talk to us about how you've been, you became scientifically interested in immunology? And how did you take your research forward from academia to big pharma to biotech? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I would probably classify myself primarily as a physician. Mm -hmm. I'm a physician, a physician scientist. I've been trained in internal medicine, which is uh, in Europe, six years of training uh, after your MD, right? It's a mm -hmm. hosp mainly hospital-based specialty. So it's slightly different from internal medicine in the, U in, the, in the US. And then at some point, I started to work together with the Department of Rheumatology. This is in the late 90s. And I was already an associate professor of internal medicine at the Leiden University Medical Center. And through this col collaboration, I got more interested in immunology and started to understand that we were at the cusp of a revolution hmm. in rheumatology through immunological interventions. So think of the uh, advent of uh, biologics like the TNF blockers, right? Mm -hmm. This happened in the late 90s. And I remember that we would see waiting rooms full of people in wheelchairs. And there was nothing, or well, not much we could do, right? We gave NSAIDs and sometimes corticosteroids, low-dose methotrexate. And then some of these patients, after the immunological intervention, could walk again. Hmm. It was like a miracle. Not for everybody, right? But it showed the proof of principle, the proof of mechanism. Yeah. That through the immunological intervention, you could change the life of patients in a fundamental way. So I decided to change course. I collaborated with the Department of Rheumatology that actually participated in the first trials together with the Kennedy Institute in the UK uh, using anti-TNF antibodies. And uh, I did an additional three years of training in rheumatology and immunology and became uh, a rheumatologist and an immunologist. Then I moved to uh, UCSD uh, for two years uh, to focus more on basic science 
And then I moved back to the Netherlands to become the uh, professor of medicine, in particular rheumatology, and the founding chair of the Department of Clinical Immunology and Rheumatology. Actually, I was the first employee, so <laughs> it, found, it sounded like a, like a big job at a young age, <laughs> proud of myself, until I found out that I had no patients, no budget, <laughs> and uh, actually no employees. But, you know, 12, 12 years later, we had created a department with 140 uh, FTEs and one of the largest centers for uh, translational immunology in the world. So this has been an exciting time. During yeah. all these years, I became, all, I was also active as an internist. I saw many patients across the whole field of internal medicine, including diabetes. Yeah, that's amazing. So you've had an amazing career to date and you're still not done. You're still going strong. <laughs> so that's a, that's quite a, you know, it's quite a path. And, but I think that each part of that path really contributes to, um, because it's, you know, because it was a different path, I think it, it contributes to where you are now and, and gives you such a broader perspective. So that's really, um, um yeah, that may be right because I have come to the conclusion that many insights into one specific field of immunology are relevant for other fields and we can learn quite a lot from each other in medical specialties yeah right? there are many similarities and differences that are truly interesting and important to understand between let's say type 1 diabetes uh, neurological disease characterized by neuroinflammation mm -hmm. actually uh, of course we are now seeing a revolution in immuno-oncology yes. which came up immunology and then i think there's still a huge unmet need in the whole field of what i call immune mediated inflammatory diseases about seven percent of the population in the western western world suffers from an immune mediated inflammatory disease including mm. type 1 diabetes so there's an incredible unmet need and that's at the same time that we are seeing huge advances in the science in our understanding it should lead to better treatments and preventative strategies yeah, well, let's hope. Can you tell us a little bit about Kintai Therapeutics and why the enteric signaling network is so important in metabolic diseases, including diabetes? Yes, absolutely. So at some point, I made the decision to move actually from my role as a professor of medicine where I treated patients, I treated patients for decades, uh, and where I trained many internists and rheumatologists and oversaw a big research program uh, to the industry. Why? Because I came to the conclusion that as a physician or a physician scientist, you may affect the life of hundreds or maybe thousands of patients. But if you develop a medicine that, let's say, improves the life of patients with diabetes or any other disease, right, you may have an impact on millions of patients. So that yeah. would be the dream. I think this is the central theme in my career. So I, I, I worked for GSK for more than seven years first to lead immunoinflammation. So this is everything in the space of autoimmunity. So think of gastroenterology, rheumatology, dermatology, clinical immunology, what have you. Uh, I became the head of development and the chief immunology officer. But then after seven to eight years, I decided to move on and I wanted to work in biotech to get a better understanding of, um, I think, the speed, right? And uh, um, the agility in biotech and also learn more about uh, the whole world of venture. So I joined uh, Flexi Pioneering 
uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and became the president and CEO of a company that was established by a flexi pioneer called Kintai Therapeutics. And the focus of Kintai was on the enteric signaling network. Mm-hmm. So, so think of the gut microbiome. You have like three pounds of microorganisms in your gut. <laughs> Right? And they, they are cells that produce all kinds of mediators that you need to stay healthy. In fact, yeah. you have more microbial cells in your body than mammalian cells. Yes. And that together makes up the human superorganism. Mm-hmm. So that's the first component. The second is the gut immune system. Most of the immune cells at any time point are found in the gut. And they circulate. They circulate to other sites in the periphery, which is relevant for autoimmunity and for cancer. Yeah. And these systems talk to each other. The gut microbiome shapes the immune system, but also the immune system determines actually the composition of the gut microbiome. So it's a signaling network. And the third component is the enteric nervous system, which you might see as a second brain. Yeah. Maybe from the point of view of evolution, it's the first brain. right? And at some point, our computational activities were outsourced to what we now call the brain. So these systems talk to each other all the time. We've mapped the gut and translated that into unprecedented insights that are this relevant to kin- multiple sorry. disease areas. Kin- this is Kintai has, has done this, right? This is all Kintai. Okay. And it's, for example, relevant for the space of metabolic syndrome, including obesity, diabetes, uh, hyperlipidemia, uh, hypertension. And we identified certain metabolites that are derived from microbial organisms in the gut that play a key role in, for example, glucose tolerance mm-hmm. and in maintaining body weight, which is, of course, very important in type 2 diabetes. Yes. And so ultimately, our medicines were or are small molecules that we've called precision enteric medicines or PEM compounds. Um, and this could have a huge impact on obesity. So the a leading program is actually in the space of obesity and improving glucose tolerance and actually in prevention uh, of diabetes. How do you think the, uh, this is sort of off the cuff, but how do you think the endocrine disruptors that are now found in the environment impact that circuit, the gut microbiome and the enteric system? Yeah, that's a good question. Many exogenous uh, factors that uh, will affect the gut microbiome and the composition of the gut microbiome and its diversity are critical to maintain health and to fight disease. Yeah. And many of these factors we do not completely understand at this moment. So it's very important to get a better understanding. But the goal should actually be to, I think, overall, uh, increase the biodiversity of the gut microbiome to have a healthy lifestyle, or to understand which mechanisms are relevant and to translate that into small molecules and pharmaceutical development. Yeah, because at onset of type 1 diabetes, there's a marked... um, you know, change and disruption of the microbiome there, you know, the diversity goes right down and there's a loss of several species. So, and also interestingly, that also occurs in several sort of mental illnesses as well. Very interesting. This is absolutely right. So therefore I think if if, to come back to your first question, if you start, want to start to think about curing and preventing type one diabetes, we always need to look at this in a holistic way. Yeah, and the human body is truly a human superorganism. So we cannot just uh, forget about what's sometimes called the forgotten organ, which is actually the gut microbiome. Yeah, I'm with you on that. 
Um, can you explain the immunology network you created at GSK? How does it operate? Did it lead to research in the, uh, at the interface of the immune system and the metabolic pathway? Yeah, absolutely. So when I was at GSK, I came to the insight that being a professor of immunology, there are many things that I do not know. And I'm a big fan of challenge and debate and peer review and looking at the edge of where you would typically look. So I created the immunology network, uh, which was a truly innovative model for the pharmaceutical industry. I think we went further than anyone else in the industry. So what is the immunology network? Think of different pillars, right? We created a very strong scientific advisory board, which is the first pillar, mm -hmm. with world-renowned professors of immunology who, who shared the language of immunology, but who had different expertise, for example, in autoimmunity or in immuno-oncology or in immunometabolics or mm -hmm. in neuroimmunology, et cetera, et cetera. So, and they were also collaborative, right? So that's also important. So you can, could create and leverage what I call collective intelligence. Yes. And I could always pick up the phone and say, well, I'm looking at this new opportunity, right? I'm just want to hear from a few experts who have just reviewed, I don't know, 30 research plans for the NIH, right? What is your view on this, right? Uh, so that, that was the SAB. Second, was the immunology catalyst. This is basically an extended sabbatical program for world star immunologists who, if selected, we would bring into our facilities uh, in R&D at GSK based in Stevenage in the mm -hmm. UK. It's like a big uh, research campus. Mm -hmm. And I would give them supportive personnel. I would give them a fantastic lab, which we call the smart lab, right? state of the art. And um, I would give them bench fee and whatever they needed. But most importantly, I would give them freedom. Mm -hmm. And they could work on whatever they wanted to work. They would help actually challenge the people in R&D at GSK in the context of peer review, mm -hmm. scientific debate, which helped to advance the science. But they could also, in a context where everybody thinks about drug discovery, start to discover their own things. And they would own it, which, is what, which I think was quite revolutionary because it was actually discovered in our labs right yeah but if it was not based on our chemistry they would own the intellectual property it was a true a model of in open innovation i think yeah that is really incredibly productive actually it led to all kinds of new ideas and ultimately to new medicines how many um how many game. people how many people move through that sabbatical program I think we accepted at the time about seven PRs, but then of course there was the whole supportive staff right below it. So it was pretty significant activity. Yeah. And then if an idea would mature, then it could lead to different outcomes actually. It could lead mm -hmm. to, and it did actually. We, we um, in-licensed a medicine from another big pharmaceutical company because based on our immunology network, we knew that it played a role in pain in osteoarthritis, although it actually it was a chemokine. And mm. this is now, this is a CCL17 antibody that's still in development at, at GSK. Another outcome could have been, well, you know, the science is fascinating. It's still early. Uh, we give it back to academia. The academics also were supposed to go back, actually. It was not a secret recruitment plan. Uh, and they would become partners, right? They would become our academic partners and they would incubate it further in academia. Or it could become 
a unit, discovery unit at GSK. Or when it was still relatively early, it become, could become a biotech company. And that's how the company that I co-founded called Citrix Therapeutics was founded. And it's, it's focused on the interface of immunology and metabolics. Actually, metabolites play a key role in defining the fate of immune cells. So you can actually, and they're quite druggable. So you can interfere with meta metabolites to change the functional properties of immune cells to treat autoimmunity or cancer. And that's what Citrix Therapeutics is doing at this moment. So these are some of the deliverables that came out of um, a very new model that we call the Immunology Network at GSK. And when, when was that started, the Immunology Network and the Immunology Catalyst? Uh, good question. I think I started it probably like five or six years ago. Okay, so like 20. Active. Okay, 20, 2015 or something. And then yeah, is that still that. available to, to scientists and postdocs to apply to that? Yeah, so I, I've left GSK to move on to, to, uh, to biotech, but the immunology network is still active. So the first component was a unique SAB. The second was the immunology catalyst program. The third was a small venture capital-like fund that I created internally so I could bring ideas to the next inflection point. Yeah. Based on decisions where I could just say, okay, we need $100,000 for this animal experiment to get it to the next inflection point without uh, a process that would take too much time so we could move fast. And the fourth was uh, I created an immunology community. Mm -hmm. between the external world, including the external SOB members, the immunology catalyst members, and, the, and there are many immunologists at GSK Pharma, right? Think about cancer, think about immunoinflammation, think about respiratory disease. It's all immunology is my bias. Yeah. So I see it as a scientific platform, but also there's a completely different business, which is called GSK vaccines. So what do people in vaccines do? They induce immune responses. They are immunologists, right? Uh, so it helped to break down the silos and to really create synergy between these different parts of the organization, between internal yeah. and external world and within the company, which has really helped to advance the science. Yeah, I love how you did this. Um, I think it's just an absolutely best practice that a lot of other um, bio, big, big biotech and pharma should really start to do. I mean, I've noticed even not, like on the, some of the big pharma are looking for new ideas. Um, I like yeah. the way you did it. I mean, I see some of them on Innocentive, which is a, um, you know, a, a place where you can go and pose a question and, and offer a cash award if, if, if the question is answered. Um, and I've seen, you know, some of the big pharma on there sort of like posing these questions to try to get new feedback. But I like the way you did it, because I think the the personal interaction and supporting the freedom of new ideas and the freedom of IP within the context of a larger entity is very, very, uh, it just has more of a ecosystem to it. So I just think it's, it's a really great way of doing things. I, I think um, you're right. And the word that you used is spot on. It's about making it personal mm. because if scientists in industry were actually equally good as scientists in academia, but have a different focus, start to work together with uh, academic scientists, then really the silos are broken down and it helps to build trust and people start to understand that we're all scientists trying to change ultimately to improve the life of patients. Yeah. And that leads to new ideas. And uh, yeah. this has been very important. Well, we're trying to do this in a digital way in our small 
entity here, the sugar science, but you know that we, we are, you're preaching to the choir. We totally believe in that. Um, I want to ask you, um, let's see where I was thinking about how did your laboratory at the academic uh, medical center in Amsterdam discover the role of the vagus nerve in chronic inflammation? This is a very interesting question. Yeah, that's a great question. So we look, we're moving backwards in my career, I know that. So uh, my last role was at Kintai and Flexi Pioneering and before that at GSK. Mm -hmm. And before that, I was uh, head of the Department of Clinical Immunology and Rheumatology at the Academic Medical Center in Amsterdam, which is one of the largest uh, academic centers in, in Europe. And uh, actually, one of my smallest research groups discovered the role of the vagus nerve in chronic inflammation in a completely unplanned manner, I have to admit. So hmm. this is all about serendipity. We were actually looking for something completely different. Yeah. We were trying to identify new therapeutic approaches for our gene therapy program. <laughs> so we had an, a program focused on intra-articular gene therapy to transduce cells at the site of the inflammation to produce in an inflammation uh, dependent way using an NF-kappa-B inducible promoter, anti-inflammatory proteins. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to look for new therapeutic proteins. So we used the, some of the key cells derived from inflamed joints called fibroblast-like synovioscytes, which mm -hmm. are stromal cells. We cultured them, used an SHRNA screen, and inhibited the gene function of many genes. And actually, we looked at as an outcome at pro-inflammatory cytokines and chemokines and matrix metalloproteinases, which are degrading enzymes that destroy the tissue. And we found one very high hit, which was the alpha-7 nicotinic acetylcholine receptor. I will mm -hmm. call it alpha-7 receptor for short. It's such yep. a long word. Yep. And then I thought, oh, what is that doing, right? So first, we repeated the experiments, um, exposed fibroblast-like xenophysitis culture to nicotine, and then because it triggers the alpha-7 receptor, but also other receptors, then we used specific alpha-7 agonist, and we could show that it reduced actually the production of mediators of inflammation and destruction. So I thought, well, that's interesting. So what does it mean in vivo? So we immunized mice with collagen type 2, which is a model to induce arthritis, okay. in alpha-7 knockout mice. And we could show that they had increased arthritis. And then hmm. we saw, thought, well, where does alpha-7 knockout, alpha-7 come from, right? From Ultimately from the vagus nerve, right? Yes. The, for the vagus nerve, it's a neurotransmitter. So we did a unilateral phagotomy. So we dissected the vagus nerve on one side in these mice. And we could show that it also led to increased arthritis activity. And then we did the opposite because actually we want to improve disease <laughs> as a physician. That's the goal, right? Yes. So we, we fed our mice with nicotine and then with a specific alpha-7 agonist. And we could show that it inhibited arthritis. And mm -hmm. then we did an experiment in rats with collagen-induced arthritis, actually in collaboration with a company in the U.S. called Setpoint. Oh, yes. And Set point. Population. So this is bioelectronics. Yes. And we stimulated these rats for 60 seconds per day uh, on the vagus nerve in the neck and could show that it inhibited arthritis activity and protected the bone and the cartilage in the joints, which was spectacular. 
Uh, and then yes, we, we that is spectacular. I've read that. Yeah. I read that paper, and I was, I thought it was uh, really interesting. It's amazing when you, when you think about it. Huh? And then I thought, well, first before we do more research, I want to be, to know for sure that it's relevant for humans because in the end I want to treat patients and not mice or rats. So we went straight to a human experiment. So I went to the neurosurgeon at the academic medical center and asked are you able to implant a vagus nerve stimulator in the neck for me? Mm. And they said, well, we can do that because we've done that many times for the treatment of uh, therapy-resistant epilepsy. Yeah. And sometimes it's used for therapy-resistant depression. Yes. So they had this experience. We did this experiment. It was published in the PNAS. And we could show that it, 60 seconds of stimulation led to a reduction in TNF production, so in pro-inflammatory cytokine production, yeah, uh, and also IL-6 and IL-1-beta. And actually, in improvement in a subset of the patients, that was quite spectacular. There were some patients who were truly therapy-resistant. They had filled multiple drugs, including multiple biologicals, including TNF blockers. Yeah. And some of them actually achieved a state of cure. This is a minority, but it's very unusual. It does not happen, right? And uh, we could actually, in some of these patients, stop all background medication. And they would just be treated with bioelectronic uh, stimulation. So in some patients, it's possible to replace small molecules or large molecules by electrons as a fundamentally new paradigm. Yeah. Uh, and the same has been shown in other immune-mediated inflammatory diseases like uh, inflammatory bowel disease, such as Crohn's disease, including TNF. Uh, anti-TNF uh, resistant patients. Well, we've been looking at, uh, we've been watching Setpoint and uh, Galvani very carefully um, from the sugar science because those um, those ways of approaching the system are 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 kind of new and and they're they're different than what people have been doing historically. So yeah. um, we've been watching that closely. I would ask you. You know, I did, there is a paper that came out of Columbia University where um, they looked at uh, using uh, voltage, small voltage pulses to um, interact with macrophages in, you know, um, inflammation. Have you, uh, have you guys uh, come across any, any work with that um, paradigm? Well, yes, absolutely. Well, actually, when you think about what happens in rheumatoid arthritis, and I think the same is probably true in other uh, inflammatory disorders like inflammatory bowel disease, that it's a complex story. But to summarize it, right, we believe that if you stimulate the vagus nerve, the signal travels down to the celiac ganglion. That leads to a signal to the splenic nerve, which is actually a sympathetic signal. So it also shows that the paradigm where there's a complete dichotomy between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic system is wrong. Uh, and then that leads actually to a change in the T cells in the spleen, which start to produce acetylcholine, which, as you might say, is a parasympathetic signal. And these T cells that produce acetylcholine will change the properties of monocytes and macrophages in the spleen that can migrate towards the site of inflammation at the remote site. So this is probably the mechanism, right, in many diseases. And I think in diabetes, it's slightly different. 
but we've clearly sh uh, uh, shown uh, that, there's a that there's an effect on monocyte linear cells. And they start to produce less uh, pro-inflammatory cytokines, in particular TNF and IL-6 and IL-1-beta. Do you know of any work that's been done um, looking at voltage pulses or voltage impact on um, the Tregs? Uh, yes, well, we have mainly focused on the, the role of acetylcholine production and, uh, and monocytes. I know that in the diabetes field, you may have seen the paper that, that recently came out right at the end of 2019 uh, from France. And uh, there are also authors from yes. Ohio and actually from Galvani. There, uh, for, for full disclosure, I have been a board member for a few years. Um, showing that there is ultimately an effect of uh, pancreatic nerve uh, stimulation on the T cells in the lymph nodes, right? And right. the effect was, was not clear, clearly um, explained by an effect on the T rex, uh, but there was an effect on autoreactive T cells. So, um, stimulation of this actually, again, sympathetic nerve. Uh, translated into a reduction in the number of autoreactive T cells that could subsequently migrate towards the pancreas. So it was, again, not a direct effect on the pancreas and on the beta cell islets, but actually an indirect effect through the immune system where uh, autoreactive T cells could be affected and they would stop from migrating uh, from the draining lymph nodes towards the pancreatic islets. Yeah, it was. Uh, we reached out to Philippe Blanco, who's an author on the paper, to have to see if we can get an interview with him. It's a fascinating paper. It is. It, it really is. I think. And again, it it raises the question: right? How do we think about these reflexes? Because another paper has shown that there are signals going directly from the pancreatic islets, actually through the vagus nerve, and uh, serotonin is here a key mediator, which is co-produced with insulin and which leads to afferent vagus nerve stimulation, leading to a signal in the brain. I think we still do not know how that translates into an efferent signal uh, from the brain into the peripheral tissues. But it is conceivable, I think, that there's also here what you might call an inflammatory reflex, a term that was coined by um, Kevin Tracy in New York, who has done set uh, point. fantastic work. Well, yeah, he was involved in set point. And um, he has really discovered this reflex in acute models of inflammation, like in LPS um, sepsis models, right? Uh, and he's one of the founders of Setpoint as well, you've had. Um, so this is truly interesting, this reflex idea. Uh, we don't know whether there's a similar reflex uh, in type 1 diabetes, but it's, it's a hypothesis that needs to be tested because... Why does the brain want to know what's going on in terms of insulin production in the pancreas? Probably because it leads to a signal, an efferent signal, right? Which could ultimately travel down to a sympathetic signal as well. And I gave you the example of how the parasympathetic signal may translate into a sympathetic signal in the, in the splenic nerve. Uh, and then ultimately, actually, it's an integrated reflex leading to acetylcholine release by T cells. So there might be something similar in type 1 diabetes. And, and that's you know, the, to be shown. Yeah, and the, beta, uh, the pancreatic beta cell is an electrogenic cell, right? We know that. And yeah. it also has an acetylcholine receptor. 
So, I mean, it's, it's like a mini brain in, in some, uh, almost like a, 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 you know, um, a, a sub, a subset, uh, you know, in, in a way it's, it's almost like a, a portal, you know, the brain, yeah, it's uh it's a very interesting organ. I think we just need to know a lot more about the basic biology of the thing <laughs> as we yeah. try to figure out what's happening to it in disease. Yeah, but the, the paper that I just referred to, I think supports the hypothesis that by stimulation of the pancreatic nerve, we cannot only, well, at least in neuron models, change the autoreactive T cells in the lymph nodes Right, the draining them so yeah, that mi yeah. may migrate towards the pancreas, but actually improve glucose tolerance yeah. in a spontaneous model of diabetes, which is the non-obese diabetes model, the NOD model. So this is truly interesting. And to come back to your first question, how can we think about uh, much better treatments for type 1 diabetes, including cure? I touched upon the fact that it needs probably to be fo heavily focused on immunology. I think we will need multifactorial approaches to really get there, right? And it may include biological interventions to give a hard hit to the immune system, to reset it, to maintain it. But probably you would also consider in the right patient, su patient subset bioelectronic approaches that are appropriate. And maybe also intervention with the enteric cycling network that I referred to, consisting of the enteric nervous system, the brain in the gut, and the many mediators that are produced by the gut microbiome and the gut immune system, and these immune cells migrate all the time, right? It's a very dynamic system. So there's a real opportunity to look at this in a holistic way. And I think the interesting lesson that you can learn from patients is that a patient is not one system, is not just the immune system or just the pancreas or just this or that. Patients will always ask questions to you as a physician. Yeah that are holistic in nature. And I think they're right. right? They ask questions like, was there something wrong with my diet? I just went through a phase of huge uh, psychological stress. Do you mm -hmm. think this is related? And often we don't know the answers, but it's quite likely that you need to look at this in such a holistic way. Yeah. And this is, I think this is what uh, T1D Exchange located in Boston is trying to do is they're trying to really, um, you know, get feedback from the actual type one diabetes community, people who have the disease and get um, an understanding of their holistic, uh, you know, concerns, what's, what, how, how they're, how they're interacting with life and, and, and use these data to try to, you know, add more value to the actual disease state. So that's helpful. Exactly. That's um, great. Is there anything else you'd like to share with your fellow listeners or with our fellow well, listeners? <laughs> Maybe that we need to be ambitious. This is the best time ever in history for biomedical research. And That's our great. goal should be not only to look at the beauty of molecules and to learn about fascinating science. As a physician and a physician scientist, my goal is to improve the life of patients. We need to think about curing patients and prevention of the disease. And we need to achieve that by looking at it in a very holistic way, taking into account many of the mechanisms that we described, and also using a kind of multifactorial or multimodality approach without any bias, and use the right approach for the right patients in combination if needed. It's good 
uh, include a bioelectronic approach, which could include the biological, which could include the small molecule or combination of this. Yeah. Well, I, 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 I agree. I think your, your, your approach and um, everything you've said, you've said today is just really spot on for the way we're trying to do things in our, in our digital platform. Um, just bringing together interdisciplinary scientists and trying to get them to communicate and collaborate and with the ultimate goal, right, of, of making people's lives better. It's very important. So thank you so much for talking to us. I'm, uh, you know, I'm hoping you have the rest, a uh, great rest of your day in Amsterdam, and uh, hopefully we will meet again. Absolutely. Thank you very much for uh, for your time. It's great talking to you, Monica. Take care.